So on Christmas morning in 1914, in the early throes of World War I, thousands of British, Belgian, and French soldiers, they left their rifles in the trenches, and they spent the holiday at peace with their German enemies. Has anybody heard this story before? It's a pretty, pretty well-known story. So they, they used whatever they had to exchange Christmas gifts, cigarettes, food, hats, buttons. Uh, it's said that in um, some areas that they even played a game of soccer together. Uh, one account talks about a British soldier getting a haircut from his pre-war German barber. There's even a story about a pig roast. Uh, it also gave them a chance to bury their dead, uh, which were left in what's called no man's land indefinitely. So Christmas brought this moment of peace, right? this moment of rest during a horrible war, which would go on to claim roughly 15 million lives over the next four years. And what's even more amazing about this story is that it wasn't just one group of soldiers that did this. Uh, when I read this, it, it surprised me. I wanted to learn more about this, so I went a little deeper. Uh, and I think I might have seen a commercial, maybe a Christmas commercial back in the day that depicted this. And it was a beautiful story, and there were about 20-ish soldiers stepping out of their trenches in the snow, exchanging Christmas gifts. But I had no idea how widespread this phenomenon was. Uh, an article in Time magazine says, no one knows where it began or how it spread, or if by some curious festive magic it broke out simultaneously across the trenches. Nevertheless, some two-thirds of troops, about 100,000 people, are believed to have participated in this legendary truce. Right? I mean, if, if anything were to be called a Christmas miracle, it would be this, Right? And the author goes on to say that most accounts reveal that the truce actually began with what? Singing. It began with songs, Christmas songs, carols coming from the trenches on Christmas Eve, what one soldier described as a beautiful moonlit night with frost on the ground, white almost everywhere. I remember the silence, the eerie sound of the silence, another soldier said. Uh, another soldier went into even greater detail. First, the Germans would sing one of their carols, then we would sing one of ours. Until we started up, O come all ye faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. So it started with singing. Right? It started with songs, but not just any songs, Christmas carols. Right? These were songs that were ingrained in the hearts of men on both sides. They resonated with both the German and the Allied trenches. They carried memories, just like they do for you and for me. Right? Think about a Christmas song for you that, that carries that kind of weight and memory and joy. Right? Memories of childhood memories of family, memories of home. And because they're repeated every year, it's like a new layer of memory and meaning gets added each Christmas season. And you know, this, this never happened again during the war. Next Christmas, it did not happen, right? Not a, at least not to this scale. And this story is so good, right, that it seems too good to be true, right? 
A lot of times you'll hear a story like this and you'll do some further research and you'll find out that it was embellished and it's become more of a legend and it can be kind of disappointing, right? Stories like this, they get debunked often. But this one is actually real, right? It's not too good to be true. It's both good and it's true. But what's always disturbed me about this story is not that it's too good to be true. It's that it's too good and true to last in a broken world. And when I read this story, I feel a mix of joy and grief, right, about when I think about this moment in time. Because come New Year's Day, they picked up their rifles, right, and they exchanged bullets with the folks that they had just exchanged songs and gifts with. Think about that. Right, handshaking, gift giving, smiles, meal sharing, and then bullets flying once again. As one soldier put it, it was a short piece in a terrible war. I read this story and I long for true and lasting peace. You know, sometimes temporary glimpses like this, they make it harder when we come back to reality. Right? And sometimes the holidays feel like that. Right? We pause for a moment. Maybe we even set aside our difficulties with friends and family in the name of Christmas, and we get together. We try to look on the bright side, but then the new year rolls around, and the luster of Christmas fades. Right? And there can be a feeling of grief when the holidays end. Uh, when you get older, maybe you're not as easily satisfied as you were when you were a kid. Uh, it's an actual thing. They've named it. It's called post-holiday depression. But Christmas... Christmas was never intended to be a temporary relief from war, right? The birth of Jesus was a trumpet sounding that war was coming to an end. Right? It was a song heralding the beginnings of peace on earth. And do you know scripture is full of songs, right? The book of Psalms alone, it carries 150 of them, right? But they're not just in there. They're also incorporated into historical tales. They're incorporated into wisdom literature and letters and apocalyptic literature. They're layered throughout, right? And there are some songs that surround the birth of Jesus that we're going to look at and walk through in these weeks of Advent. These are songs that have deep meaning and resonance, songs that point to peace and joy and the marvelous work of God. And today we're going to talk about the big picture of the Bible. Before we get into the specific songs, I want to talk about the big song that God has. Did you know the first words of the Bible are very likely a song? The Bible opens up with an overture, singing about the creation of the world and everything in it. We're introduced to God, our creator, with a song. And so I want to talk about that song today. I want to talk about the greater symphony that God creates. So we're going to look at God's symphony. We're going to talk about the composition, right? Every symph symphony needs to be composed, right? We're going to talk about the composition of that symphony. We're going to talk about the distortion of that symphony. And we're going to talk about the retuning of that symphony through the coming of Jesus Christ, through Christmas, right? The composition the distortion, and the retuning of God's great symphony. So let's look at these opening words in the book of Genesis. Genesis just means beginnings, and that's how it starts. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning, Genesis 1, first page of your Bible, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, right? God creates the sky and he creates the earth. Verse two, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. And did you know that Hebrew word for hover is used to describe a mother hen that hovers over her eggs, right? The spirit of God hovered over the earth like a hen waiting for her eggs to hatch. Think about that. How amazing is that? And then here's where we start to hear the patterns that you'd find in poetry or a song. Then God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. So God brings light to the darkness. There's this physical pattern that's going to shine spiritually throughout all of Scripture. God bringing light to darkness. That's what he does. And this pattern uh, in, in the song is going to continue for six days as God creates. You're going to see it again. Let there be, and there was. God saw that it was good. Evening, morning, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. And on the sixth day, he creates humanity, and they're called very good. And on the seventh day, he rests. And when he rests, after speaking all this into existence, the earth that was once formless, empty, and silent is now formed, filled, and singing back to him the symphony of creation. Right? God saw what he made, and it was good. Have you ever stopped to just listen to the world around you, to just be still and quiet and listen to the world around you? Right? It's noisy. Not just from cars and man-made stuff, but even if you go out into the middle of the woods, right, there's noise, there's wind, there are footsteps, there are animal sounds, there's the sound of moving water, the sound of breathing, the sound of life, right? That's, That's just what you can hear, right, as a human. There are sounds going on at frequencies and volumes that are lost even on our limited human ears, but they're not lost on God. He hears it all. You know, even apart from Judeo-Christian beliefs, the ancient Greeks like Pythagoras and the Romans like Cicero, they entertain this idea that the created universe was filled with music. And you know Pythagoras, he's the guy that helped us figure out the, the length of one side of the triangle, if you remember that from high school. Uh, he, he coined the term music of the spheres or celestial harmony. And he believed that if if music pitches were determined by the length of a string on an instrument, then the planets around us, which orbit in bands, that they should be making sound as well as they move. And maybe that sounds crazy at first. I had to figure out, like, okay, now going this far ahead, was he right or was he wrong? And so I looked for some takes by uh, today's physicist, and it turns out that he wasn't really wrong. Uh, astrophysicist Tamara Davis, she writes, the combinations of notes that sound harmonious to our ears can be derived mathematically as their frequencies make simple ratios. Stay with me here. (laughs) It turns out that the orbits of the planets also happen in simple ratios. 
Mars takes approximately twice as long to orbit the Earth. Turned into a musical chord, that means Mars and Earth play an octave. Venus orbits three times faster than Mars, which means they play a fifth plus one octave. These planets are orbiting together in harmony. And of course, the sound waves don't travel through space, right? But the arrangement is there. How amazing is that? I have trouble believing that that is just a freak accident among many other freak accidents. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 19. Right, a song about this creation symphony. When's the last time you stopped and listened to the song? Right, it's beautiful. The Bible opens with God's creation song. And all throughout, it tells us how creation sings back to him as if it were created to do that very thing. It was, right? We were And it does what it was created to do to the very fine details of planets soaring through space in time on pitch. But but do we do what we're created to do is the question, right? Can we join in that song? What's our place? Uh, Jewish Christian philosopher from the early 20th century, Simone Weil, She says, the love we feel for the splendor of the heavens, the plains, the sea, the mountains, for the silence of nature, which is born in upon us with its thousands of tiny sounds, the love we feel for the breath of the wind or the warmth of the sun, this love of which every human being has at least an inkling is incomplete and painful. It calls us in, but we can't get in. In other words, listening to the beauty of the creation symphony for us is like a brief moment of peace brought on by a Christmas carol at wartime. This isn't just a song that you want to listen to, but it's a symphony that you want to be part of. It calls us, but we can't get in. What does that mean? What's our part? See, in his creation song, when God creates humanity, we're the only part of his creation that he calls very good, right? Everything is called good. It was, he saw that it was good. Humanity, very good. Made in the image of God, called very good. Humanity is the crown of God's creation, right? The only instrument in the symphony with the unique ability to capture and express the heart of the composer in a way that no other instrument can. At the same time, we're the only ones with the freedom to play the notes of our choosing, right? And when you look back at Genesis 3 in the garden, Adam and Eve were tasked with cultivating and spreading life across the earth, and they were given their part to play, Right? Every tree in the garden, even the tree of life, was available for them to eat from. But God gave them the freedom to play their own notes, and they went way off pitch. Right? They're tempted by Satan and told that they can be like God if they eat the one fruit that he's forbidden. They believe the lie that they would be better composers and conductors than God uh, and that they should run the show apart from him, right? And God, true to his word and his warning, he kicks them out of the band, 
right? In this parallel song of sin next door, right? It introduces dissonance and distortion to God's masterpiece, right? God composed it. Humanity distorted it with sin. We can't help but play off pitch and out of key now, right? We struggle to sing the same song because we've chosen to be our own masters, Nature's invitation to praise God is often lost on us. Even when we try, we know we're going to hit a bad note, right? Sin has distorted God's symphony, and it's laced into every human being that's ever lived, you and me too. That's why we call it the fall of humanity. Right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Sin brings death, including and especially spiritual death. Right? Apart from God's redemption in Jesus Christ, which we're going to see play out later, that's where we are, right? That is the judgment of God. And that's the history of humanity. If you just look at my opening story, right, the contrast between a couple of days of Christmas followed by four more years of bullets, right? The pervasiveness of human sin, it's actually one of the easiest Christian doctrines to prove. And that's because we as humans have made it very real and very evident. Right? All you have to do is pick up a history book, watch the news, look into your own heart and your thoughts, and you will see it. Right? You'll hear it like a dissonant note, right? like beautiful white snow on Christmas tainted by the blood of soldiers just a couple days later. Right? We know it's not the way it's supposed to be. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how after this humanity shifted worship from the creator to the created. And if you look around at various world religions, you'll see that animals, nature, and even the earth itself are often revered as gods or as mediators between humanity and the divine. And in doing that, the pinnacle of God's creation becomes subject to beautiful, though lesser, beings. It's a twist on God's created order. It's a distortion. Sometimes we worship one another, right? We place our identities, our hope, and our worth in a person, another human being, right? A relationship. Again, that's a distortion. God wants our eyes on him. He wants our eyes on the conductor, right? It's a good time to ask ourselves, where are my eyes looking? Are my eyes on the conductor, And way later, just a few chapters in Genesis, but many years later, we see God make moves to retune this orchestra, to bring humanity back into this creation symphony. He plucks a man named Abraham from uh, this way of life. From him comes a people that, um, I mean, and Abraham comes from a people that did not worship God, right? And he tells him that he's going to bless him. He tells him that his descendants will outnumber the stars, and from this man comes the nation of Israel, right? And Israel is God's chosen nation to show the world who he is, right? To try again, to be a people that says, no, God is our king. God is our conductor. We follow his leads, his lead, right? Among the many nations that do not Israel was to follow God's lead and show the world who he was. And so he gives them laws that make them stand out, right? They're to act differently. They're to follow the Ten Commandments, which are summed up, Jesus says, in the words of love your, the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22. 
That's God's sheet music for us, by the way. Love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you know the story, you know that they fail to do this over and over again, and they deal with the judgment of God over and over again, and the grace of God over and over again. And he remains true to his character and true to his promises. And from this nation is supposed to come the Messiah, right? The Christ, Jesus, a promised king who's going to restore not only their nation, but the whole world to bring peace on earth. The promise is that he's going to sit on the throne of their greatest king. And who's that? David, right? Their greatest king was David. In Isaiah 9-7, it says he will reign on the throne of David. And do you know who wrote a good portion of Israel's songs? Yeah, most of the hymns in the book of Psalms, uh, they're attributed. He's the, he's the most present author in, in the book of Psalms. They're attributed to David. King David was a music maker. Right from the time he was a youth into his old age. And the promise was that the Messiah would reign on the throne of the music-making king. Right, that he would retune the instruments, that a new song would be sung, not just a song of creation, but a song of redemption. And Israel was waiting a long time for this king to come. And we sang a song earlier that puts that into perspective, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, right? Their sin landed them in exile in foreign nations. They were dominated by foreign powers over and over again, and they were waiting for a savior. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This is why songs that we sing surrounding the birth of Jesus, why our Christmas carols talk about things like a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, or the hopes and fears of all the years find rest in you tonight, or let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Right. <laughs> Glory stream from heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing hallelujah, Christ the Savior is born. Right? Jesus was long awaited, not just since the inception of Israel, but from the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. God's promise was to restore what was broken, and it's woven throughout all of Scripture. It's all pointing to him. And he's called Emmanuel. He's called God with us because God took on human flesh, right? veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Right? What's the next line? Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Even in, in the Bible, Jesus' coming was surrounded by songs. Those are just our Christmas carols, but the Bible has songs of its own, songs of waiting, songs of longing, songs of mourning, songs of celebration. Right? And when Jesus came and he played every note perfectly, right? He lived the perfect light, life following God the Father with every step, and his music was sweet to God and salvation to us. 
And in his last days, crowds cheered for him when he entered Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. And the jealous religious leaders, they told him, tell the crowd to be quiet. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep quiet, the stones would cry out. Creation can't help but sing to the creator. Yet at the same time, having done nothing wrong, he took God's judgment for us, for our sin, Right, like an unplugged record player, the music stopped when he was on the cross. The sky went dark. His breath was quieted. His friends, his family, his followers wept because the Savior King was dead. But on the third day, he rose right, with a new song, a song of redemption and eternal life, and a song that carries a promise that all who believe in him would have everlasting life. The second part of Romans 6.23, remember, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus took our wages, and he gave us the free gift. And here's what that means. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. So if you believe in Jesus, if you are in Christ, then you are new, right? The Spirit of God who hovered over the unformed earth at the overture of God's story, he dwells in those who believe in Jesus, And it's fascinating that in Scripture, songs are often accompanied or even inspired by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has made a way for us to answer nature's invitation to praise God, to join in God's symphony, to sing the songs of redemption. That's what we sing when we worship him together here on Sunday, right? And it pleases him. Our notes are pleasing to him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When we see people sing songs in Scripture, they're often filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at a song like that uh, called Zechariah's Song in the Gospel of Luke, where he's filled with the Holy Spirit uh, in the coming weeks. And we're told in Scripture to sing to each other, to sing together to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. If you're a believer, that spirit lives in you. He is in you, and you have the song. You have the eternal song with you all the time in peace, in war, in wealth, in poverty in easy times, and in really, really hard times. During the highlights and holidays and during the ordinary seasons of life. And if you don't have that, you are invited into that by God. God's church is a singing people, right? We can sing knowing that he's with us today, knowing that he's with us tomorrow, knowing that he's with us forever. Right? God has composed a symphony, a, a love song to his most beloved and cherished creation. He loved us first. And because of Jesus, we can join him in the song of all creation, and we can sing back to him in love. 
Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipation. But what we're waiting for isn't a temporary wartime truce. We are waiting for peace on earth. Jesus is our peace. So we look back at the world's anticipation of the birth of Jesus, the first trumpet sounding that the war was coming to an end, a song heralding the beginnings of peace on earth. And as new creations, as his newly retuned instruments, we look forward to the day when he returns to not only restore us, but to restore the whole world, a day when God will recreate a world with no pain, no death, where God himself is said to wipe the tears from our eyes. And we will join the angels in song. Think about that. All of creation, with every tribe, nation, and language represented, Scripture says. And we will sing, right? We will sing about his love, We will sing about his salvation. We will sing about his glory. And it will be the most beautiful song that you have ever heard. Think about that. 